Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Oh 
listening to Anchor Radio Show. We're just uh, starting an archival show, and um, we're running through some history that's been recorded over the years. So the next <clears throat> piece you'll be listening to is Let's Talk, April 30th, 2013. I'm Leonora Gregg. Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning to all of our listeners around the world. I've got uh, a little bit of feedback here because something's gone wrong with our with our radio. Hang on, so, sorry everyone. I think I was trying to multi-task uh, too too much here. <laughs> so my apologies there. I'm Leonora Gregory Salura, your host today for Family, Technology, and Education, Notwithstanding Employment. And my very special guest today is Rod Morris from the United Kingdom. And Rob, Rod, pardon me, runs um, an organization called WASP, W-A-S-P. So welcome to the show, Rod. Thank you for having me, Leo. It's fantastic um, that you've... You do what you do, and um, you're kind enough to allow me to participate. Well, I'm sorry about um, my introduction there. I kind of got a bit screwed up with the station. <laughs> Could you tell the listener what WASP stands for, please? Um, well, basically, it's, um, it stands for With Asperger's because it is um, an autism-led organization. Um, the WASP aspect was twofold, really, to get uh, an eye-catching logo but also the analogy of um, a wasp in a jam jar to describe um, an individual with autism um, experiences within sort of society, let's say, of a feeling of being trapped, being trapped and not being able, not to, being able to, express to express ourselves naturally. Wow, that's, that's, that's a really good uh, analogy. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from your website about wasp. Wasp with Asperger Limited is a not-for-profit social enterprise which began life through the directors of the company trying to gain personal insight while supporting adults with Asperger's and recognizing the lack of available understanding, services, and support for individuals and their families. It is our belief that this contributes to difficulties experienced by those on the autistic spectrum. In combining the qualities we all possess as individuals, our vision is to work together in promoting Collective ideas to others who are interested in providing a positive way forward. So that really says it all, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, it actually started with me because I've been diagnosed with autism twice. Um, the first time, I, I went to all the organisations, um, read like uh, quite a few books. And apart from being apart really, being really um, depressing, especially a lot of literature, um, I found that none of the organisations um, spoke to me um, as an individual and couldn't provide a way forward. Um, so I actually wanted to meet up with other people that had been uh, diagnosed um, to see if we have you know, shared experiences. And um, I met up with an, uh, an individual called Peter Wade who set up 
the first ever um, autism group for adults in Coventry. And um, I went a few times, and um, I came up with the idea of um, a book because I was hearing these these people's stories, um, and they were really sort of quite inspirational and terrifying at the same time. And no one had thought to document these. Um, so what I what I did was um, I collected their stories, interviewed them, um, but I wanted the book to talk to professionals. So it's written in a very academic sense. Um, but we also realised that we needed an organisation to promote the book, but also to promote training around it. So that's when the idea of setting up a social enterprise came about. It's really interesting that you, you talk about social enterprise because this year, um, at the end of the spring into the summer, my husband Charlie and I and our company, a couple of our facilitators, went up uh, into the Okanagan and we did a workshop on social enterprise to... Um, 50 people who, not not all were on the spectrum, others were uh, down, cerebral palsy, etc., age ranging between 16 and 75 years of age. And um, it was really interesting for us because um, we're so familiar with social enterprise and they were not. And the question that came throughout the workshop and thereafter was, you know, we've been with these community living organizations. How come we haven't been supported to learn about this? Um, so it's quite interesting that it's out there, and yet, unless, you know, we do it collectively as people under the umbrella of disabilities and go seek one another out, it's really hard to, to uh, you know, get the message out to those people that are under those kinds of umbrellas what do you think about that? Um, I, I certainly agree. Um, I mean, the reason we chose um, social enterprise um, was the fact that we felt that it, f it fitted the, um, the needs and the aspirations of the people involved. Um, rather than, let's say, um, a charity, we've never sort of sought funding, etc. Um, we recognise that the people involved um, have something to offer society. Um, so the... the, the um, with autism being largely considered social, mm -hmm. um, um, if, it, if it's that side, and the enterprise aspect is um, the, the community business type thing, um, um, where people people's people skills people are recognised, and it's it's almost like because like, when you're a charity, when you're a charity you sort of almost have almost to, um, to um, you spend more time campaigning. <laughs> And, and actually, um, the stuff that you end up doing tends to be reflective of the funders rather than what you originally set out to do. Exactly. We're, we're in the same situation as you. Mm. We're not funded either. And that provides an amazing amount of freedom. Um, I mean, my dream was, was to have a, a, is to have a collection of many social enterprises that are linked together so that if, if um, difficulties that is encountered by one social enterprise, it won't mean the end of the concept. Exactly, exactly right. With these big, with these big bloated companies, you know, organizations, um, they run a huge risk and um, with that as well, the larger the organization, the less flexible they are in their thinking. Exactly. It's 
it's quite interesting that, that and the timing is, is fascinating to me because, uh, as you said, you know, coming together um, and, and linking up and, 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 and your dream. And here we are now linked up. Um, it's and I've waited many years, <laughs> believe me, for, for, for this to, to occur. And I'm really glad that um, individuals and organizations in other countries are on, are on the same thinking um, that I have been. Well, yeah, it's, it's the timing. Timing is everything. You told me earlier that your background is in media and uh, filmmaking, and I, I noticed on your website that you've um, advised producers BBC program Inside Out um, yes. about autism. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. um, I, I, I sort of had a phone call from uh, a producer who I think saw the website, and he, he, he was asking questions as like, what, what did I think autism was? <laughs> um, you know, basic questions like that. So you've got a producer that's obviously been commissioned to, to produce a program and didn't know anything about the subject. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I mean, I would have liked to have appeared on, on the program, um, but they want they obviously wanted the usual format of an individual diagnosed with autism telling their story about how difficult their life is, and then uh, a neurotypical medical professional telling them telling about them this about so-called disease. <laughs> yeah. But it's a standard format. Um, and we have, it's a code. It's a code, mm. and, and we have to break that code. Um, just uh, talking about codes for a quick moment, uh, today is the funeral of a, a very dear friend of ours, Pam Button, whom uh, yeah, we did a tribute to her on Friday, Friday on the last, on the last uh, Friday's uh, Friday. open mic radio show. She's a dear friend of ours, and she was one of the first um, to be diagnosed with classical autism in 1951. And on the radio show with me last June, of which we played excerpts on Friday, she talked about breaking the code because she was institutionalized, right, on, on yes. occasions and given shock therapy treatment and so forth. And, and, have, and I've heard many, many autistic people talk about breaking the code meaning breaking outside of the box, you know, that everyone's yes. Everyone's yes. in. Yes. Um, and um, then when we flip that over now to social media, not social media, pardon me, mainstream media and society who have literally coded us, if you will, um, we're at a place now collectively that we have to break that code too. Oh, definitely, and I, I do think that um, I, I share your loss. By the way, when, whenever um, a pioneer sort of passes away, it's a, it's a great loss. It is, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I just wish that I'd have known her and people like her that have passed like in person. <laughs> so I imagine they were hugely inspirational. She, you know, she, you know. Um, I'll just share with you and the listener. She was a very mm. humble person, and. Mm. Um, last summer, I connected her with Temple, who's also a friend of ours, and it was one evening, um, a sister of one of our online friends had come to do some work with us at our home on the Sunshine Coast, and uh, Pam had called to speak to us, and so we had this conversation, and she was she was reminiscing on when she'd met with Temple in 1998, and and that how Temple really, really honored her 
in a small group because she had worked all her life regardless of what had happened to her. And so we we were talking, and I said, you know, I'm going to phone Temple right now and put us on a conference call so you can say this to to her yourself. Because Pam was, you know, retired a couple of years ago. She was 63 when she passed away. And she retired, I believe, at age 60. She took early retirement. And her her issue, and I don't know if it was an issue, it was something that bothered her all the time. And she said this even to Temple. She said, but you know, Temple, you've got a PhD and I don't. I don't even know if I have a grade 8. And Temple said, but you know, you've worked all your life and you're an achiever. And then at that point, Temple... recommended that Pam come out to the awards. And from at that point then, Charlie and I and our organization, um, you know, worked to bring her out. And unfortunately, she took gravely ill in September. And she phoned us and she was crying and very upset that, you know, the doctors wouldn't allow her to come. And um, the point I'm trying to make is that Pam was very humble and felt that she wasn't, deserving of the position of, say, Temple Grandin, and yet Temple yes, saw yes. herself yes. in Pam. Yes. Do you yes. see what I'm saying? The Temple saw herself in Pam, and we were getting Pam to see herself in Temple. <laughs> and, and that's how these things, it's, it's about passing on, on knowledge, isn't it, from one generation to the next, so that so that future generations can be inspired. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, there are many what I would consider uh, hidden heroes, if you will, to put it. Oh, de- right? definitely, definitely. And I also, I also think that we are um, humbled anyway. Um, I mean, I've never, no, I've re- never I find really it really difficult to like promote what I've achieved. It is because when, when, when you have um, differences. In like say learning, um, like say dyslexia, um, etc., it places that much burden, burden on you. So you have to um, struggle, um, surrounded by people and organisations that don't understand you, and you have to work so much harder. Um, I mean, with me, I was I left school with no qualifications and was written off. And it was only until the age of 23, when I was diagnosed with dyslexia, that um, I was told by the first person, by that person for the first time in my life, that I wasn't thick or stupid. Wow! And I started education from scratch from that moment. So one word can inspire an individual, individual. to Absolutely. achieve to achieve to achieve amazing things. And I'm in the process now of um, doing my last assignment on my master's, and I had to do a PhD. Well, you see, and that, that was what I was telling Pam, too, you know, you don't put yourself down because you don't have this, that, or the other. You rise yourself above all of that, and, and you know, you know, for, for us, the legacy the she legacy has left is really an amazing work ethic. Um, she worked her entire life. She was never on disability, regardless of what happened to her. And to me, that was to, that that deserves a PhD, if you know what I mean. <laughs> That's well, highly courageous. I, I certainly think that um, I think if there was more PhDs that are actually based on life experience, then I think society would learn more about living. 
Well, because then we would have different styles of professors, wouldn't we? We would have professors yes. based on experience as opposed to theory. And uh, <laughs> Oh, exactly. exactly. It feeds into this whole aspect of the social model as well. Mm-hmm. Of like actually, you know, lived, lived experiences um, which actually communicate um, to other people that have been through similar things. Because um, there are some hugely inspirational people out there, but they really, really um, have the opportunity to to have a voice. That's exactly true. Because um, that I did a posting today, which got a lot of commentary and a lot of interaction, which was some TV thing to do with Oprah on, you know, basically devastation of autism and families and the rising yeah. numbers and the <laughs> epidemic and da 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 da. And the the comments and the comp- interactive conversation that came from that, because I posted it and I linked it to as many people as I could online or on the spectrum, and I was really surprised and pleasantly surprised and happy to see how all of a sudden everyone converged, came together collectively, and then had this idea about hitting mainstream media, i.e. Ellen DeGeneres' show or whatever. Yes. And um, and it is exactly what you just said. It's because the voices have not, you know, had the opportunity and will not have the opportunity, actually, if we continue to allow mainstream media to go down this, you know, terrible road. Um, well, exactly, and, and I think as well, if, if you look at where funding generally ends up, it ends up with um, the organisations that are, say, pro-cure, etc., etc., um, and it doesn't... It, it never gets fed through to organisations like ours. Right. Um, as a consequence. But I do think, having studied media myself and no, keeping a close eye on things eye like, say, the newspaper industry, um, there's more and more... Um, things moving online. It's all, it's almost like the news, newspaper industry is sort of dying a slow death. It sure is, and actually, television is too, because yes. we did our awards convention festival um, in October, and in Canada, October is Autism Awareness Month, but you never see anything out there about it. Um, we were approached by Vancouver Television, which is a new media company. Mm-hmm. whereby they film, they go and get sponsors, and we provided two sponsors, and they came out. And they go to social events um, that are unique, um, you know, that sort of change of, of, you know, how society is changing, if you will. And they look for events such as ours. And so we're very fortunate, but they have a whole different take on television and media, as you say. Right, and yes. we found that a few documentarians through um, other channels, other channel, such as through the Rompong television, television for Romania, Romania and then Omni Romania. television, um, those types of people are much more open because they are documentarians to begin with. Yes, I, I, I t- totally understand. Um, I mean, I also I also think that um, there is a new technology such as like um, special effects, etc could provide a way forward regarding letting um, people know what the lived experience of autism is from person to person. So rather than necessarily someone describing it in words, um, you pictures, can do it through media. 
pictures actually, pictures um, actually um, provide much more provide information. More information. Mm -hmm. And if it's done right, that can be a wonderful platform for communicating what the experience is like. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because in 1998 we were approached by CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Television, mm. uh, Fifth Estate, um, with a very well-renowned world -renowned journalist and writer, Victor Malaret, and he was and he, uh, he is an investigative reporter. And they and wanted they to do initially a show about you know spouses you know, on the spectrum. On the spectrum. And they because and they, Charlie and I were getting married, getting married, they came out and very quickly they changed the angle of the show because we introduced them to individual autistic people, you know, from age you know, from eight age all the way up to our age. And so they had and to so they work had really to hard really over four hard. days then to figure out what their angle was going to be. Anyway, they anyway, worked right they up till right this up time, of airing, time of airing, and I was and so I was taken aback so by uh, what they did because they visually were able to put my life experience into a few seconds of visuals. And for the first the time, first I could time see I what was going on, going on inside me, inside now me, outside, of me. outside of me. And it was absolutely brilliant. I was just wowed by it. So I know and exactly what you're And it's very, very it's powerful. Very powerful. Um, um, I mean, I mean you know, television, television and the visual image, you can get across so much information in such a short space of time. And, of course, if you're dealing with visual thinkers like me, because I, I never sort of grew up being able to read books, etc. I used um, film and television as my medium, as like, I know now that I, I would use the social stories. The problem is with how, with social stories and um, using media, is it's generally not reflective of real life. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, let's take the listener back onto a journey um, you said that you know it wasn't until you were 23 that the penny dropped, so to speak, when you were given one word, uh, yeah. dyslexia. But where did, how did you find out that you were on the spectrum, and why did you get diagnosed twice? Well, the um, the dyslexia assessment was a private um, was private diagnosis, as was my first um, diagnosis of autism. Um, I just. I graduated from my postgraduate certificate in education, and uh, my mother, who works as a um, senior support worker um, at a college, um, recognised elements in me in my in my um, development, etc., and um, my difficulties, I say, um, and she. I went, to, I went to have a di have diagnosis, diagnosis. Um, uh, not knowing anything not about anything autism about whatsoever, it. never read a book on it, <laughs> and I was, I was um, diagnosed at the age of 30, um, and as I've said before, I, I went to various organisations trying to seek knowledge, etc. Um, how I came to be diagnosed um, a second time was when I started... Um, university again doing my postgraduate in Asperger's um, I tried to get support such as um, um, special educational needs uh, computer etc but I needed to be reassessed so um, this assessment was done by the local education authority and it took place over two days so it was a two-day assessment um, which is quite in-depth IQ tests and uh, 
for that. And um, I've come up with some additional diagnosis. So now I'm diagnosed with autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, um, hyperactivity, and secondary mental health um, anxiety and depression. But what's interesting is that my underlying uh, cognitive ability is less is found in less than one in two thousand. Wow. So I'm looking at your website right now, and um, there's a, a quote here that says, people with Asperger's syndrome are viewed largely in negative terms, but as Rod Morris and Peter Wade explain, it's inaccurate stereotyping and inappropriate interventions that are most likely to lead to long-term damage. You and I talked about this briefly earlier today. Could you explain what you mean by that to the listener? Well, basically, um, that was an article, was an article I, wrote I wrote for Able Magazine, Able magazine. Um, which I've um, reposted which on the, uh, the, uh, the website. And um, um, in answer to the question, I've got um, a quote and um, my response that I've written in uh, a recent thesis. And I think hopefully this, this will answer. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the quote is by Jim Sinclair, um, and it begins, Autism isn't something a person has, or a shell, that a person is trapped inside. There is no normal child hidden behind the autism. Autism is a way of being. It is pervasive. It colors every experience, every sensation, perception, thought, emotion, and encounter, every aspect of existence. It is not possible to separate the autism from the person, and if it were possible, the person you'd have left would not be the same person you started with. This is important, so take a moment to consider it. Autism as a way of being it is not possible to separate the person from the autism. My response is also as there, are, there is no intervention for what is seen as the core aspects of autism. Consequences of interventions from a young age, whether the individual is diagnosed or not, will have a direct influence on that individual, and therefore how autism is recognized, diagnosed, and researched. With this in mind, it could be inferred that if an individual is not afforded the opportunity to develop naturally as an individual with autism, diagnosis and research will ultimate, ultimately focus mainly on the results of interventions by others, and additionally comment on the effect of this as being autism, thus undermining what autism actually is. Well, well said. This is um, a video produced by British people. Are you familiar with it? I know Jim Sinclair had something to do with it as well. And we showed a part of it at our convention. And it started off with sort of a robotic voice and words. It's called It's Time to Listen. Are you familiar with that? Um, I'm not, no. It's a brilliant video. Um and I know he had a lot to do with it because he's got the credits at the back, but it was produced it was in the United Kingdom. And it I, really, really I really do like the work of Jim Sinclair. I think, I think he speaks with um, great clarity and authority. Um, in the article I wrote, <coughs> one of the things that I was alluding to um, was this aspect of autism being an absolute strength and offering examples of, of this regarding, for example, sensitivity, um, so sensitivity of sound can be, you know, really good for music production, etc. Sensitivity of taste could be good in um, food testing and um, alike. 
um, eye, for, eye for detail, um, you know, good in, in art, etc., etc. So my philosophy is that rather than concentrate on the deficits um, or apparent deficits in autism, um, you have to go through the positives. Absolutely. And, and encourage the po positives, and then what you'll find is you'll, you'll find that the, the so-called deficits won't be that much of an issue if they're supported. Exactly. That's what we've found in the 17 years of uh, mm. working with our clients at Anchor. Um, I've um, got a comment got here a comment from here Samuel from 33 in the chat room, chat room. Um, um, related to the, the passage that you read earlier. He says, but you can separate the autism from the person. The person is the human being. The autism is the processing system. They interrelate but are separate, provided the person is supported in that framework. Yes, and I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I also think that with... With this concentration with on labelling, labeling, um, um, it's often forget and forgotten that we're actually talking about human beings. And I think um, when when there's uh, commentators um, talking in, t in terms of negatives, um, it seems the, the labelling system seems to be a distraction um, regarding cause and effect that it will have on that individual and how they see themselves. So there's a whole psychological effect that if you're as, as a child or as an adult, um, constantly thought of in negative terms, then that person will take that negativity and it will affect them psychologically. Exactly. It's exactly. a chain reaction. Yes. This article um, posted uh, on the autism blog, it was Oprah on Autism Part 1, and there's a, a video uh, which I chose not to watch. Um, I was more interested in the commentary underneath it. And a gentleman by the name of Joseph Valencourt um, um, responded to, you know, a bunch of postings by various, various individuals. individuals. And he alludes to uh, everything. I'm going to read it and then let the, the listener okay. and yourself comment. I admire your courage in fighting for your child. So he's responding to a post uh, under this this. Um, a comment under the posting. Autism for many can be a gift. We are now learning that most kids with autism have above average abilities but below average in other areas. I recommend you to learn about social Darwinism and its role in developing eugenics, the evil philosophy that sought to distinguish people along evolutionary lines. This view believed that some people were better than others because they had better genes and came from a superior race. A superior race was a race that achieved a higher level of evolution than another. Social Darwinism through eugenics sought to remove inferior genetic code because it believed that we needed to prevent this code from being passed on. This view lived itself out in many great men, Hitler, Tommy Douglas, founder of Universal Healthcare in Canada, Walt Disney, Graham Bell, and beauty pageants. I believe that it's important to realize that everyone has challenges, including those who have autism and those who do not. Welcome to the human condition. And, and, that's, and that's a very phrase I use, um, the, the human condition, because that, that's what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about um, not a human condition, but the human condition. That's right. He, he continues on with to another... Uh, Post. Autism is only a disease because a lot of families believe it's a disease. 
To those who want to define everything separate of God and see everything through the eyes of a perceived sense of what is normal, perceived sense being the operative here. The fact is, if we have people who are really smart and capable, then we will have people who are not. To try and change this fact is called eugenics, and the last time a country tried in real sense to do this caused World War II. People are diverse, and there will always be people who are different. I find the idea of autism as a pandemic offensive and immoral. No, no, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I also think that there are elements to how society has changed. So, um, for example, you've got more cities, you've got more people within very small spaces. Um, So there will be... When when you have a society that's, that's constructed... Um, say like as it is now compared to 100, 100 years ago um, there's far more demands that than the human condition can cope with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well he, he, this guy continues to say a learning disability is not a disability all it means all is it that your child learns differently, differently. and if your teacher if knew what he or she is doing they would also know how to teach a child In fact, there are, I believe, seven primary learning styles that every human being has. However, our structural educational institutions are only able to teach maybe one or two of these learning differences. So this guy sort of has has it on the pulse, so to speak. (laughs) Yes, and I absolutely agree. I mean, one of the things that I've highlighted as well is, especially with education, and I guess in in the home as well, is... um, People try and teach other other people, whether they're children or adults, but no one investigates how a person learns. You, you know, surely you have to understand how a person learns before you can teach. Um, if, a person, if a person learns differently, then that person is labelled as being learning, having a learning difficulty, whereas actually they learn just learn differently. Well, he's responding to another person, who, and the person says. I'm so glad that Oprah has gotten involved in this. There needs to be more awareness and more research done. This is only getting worse. People need help with autistic children. It is so exhausting and so hard to deal with on your own. His response, I am too. I just hope it's not one of those attempts to gain rating by causing people with these differences into objects of pity, charity, or as a menace. However, I believe she kind you in unintentionally made people think that kids with AFD are too difficult to deal with, and this sort of attitude leads to one of the world's most horrific abuses by the U.S., the United Kingdom, Canada, Canada European governments European of the last three, the last three centuries. centuries. So, there you go. <laughs> yes, and I'm, I'm finding myself agreeing with, with you know, um, everything you're saying, certainly, and that, that provides me with great hope. Well, it's, uh, when you uh, start, you know, when one starts to see people like this interact uh, on a blog post like that, um, we need more of us to, to be doing this, you know, obviously. Um, because, as, as you and I said earlier, we need the collective um, to make any inroads, don't we? Well, so I certainly... Um, I, definitely agree with, with that um, and that's been something that I've strived for for all the years I've um, been doing what I'm, I've been doing um, I mean one of the things that um, I've written extensively about recently is this aspect of um, 
people not being able to differentiate between meltdowns and tantrums. tantrums. And the um, behaviour tends, tends to escalate because um, when, it's, when these issues aren't, aren't um, seen as meltdowns, people intervene, things escalate, and then that's deemed as being autism. Exactly. There is avoidable meltdowns due to inappropriate environments and interventions. Exactly. One of the things we did early on in 1995 is, as I said, you know, Parents and educators and support parties need to change how they view, uh, you know, what they were terming as tantrums or meltdowns. And so I came up with a thing called NPI, Neurophysiological Interruption. And I said to them, if you can think as, of it as a neurophysiological interruption, then your mind isn't going to go down the road of your own emotional problems which then interfaces with the child and ups the ante and creates more problems. So you have to understand how the autistic paradigm works from the inside out, how the thought processing system works, how it may not be interfacing with the environment. You have to be aware of the environment, but understand the mechanics of the system of the autistic individual and stop sort of throwing these stupid words um, which then escalate the child's behavior because the child is not um, getting his or her communication needs met. And, and as you just said, you know, these interventions do not work. In actual fact, they're, they're archaic. Um, and, and, I mean, who in the world raising a child would be raising a child uh, without the parent but with an adult, you know, anywhere between 40 and 80 hours a week? It's, it's disgusting. Well, it, it is, and it, it also shows um, potential widespread fraud within media and um, research regarding, um, for example, if, if, say, like a research or television program captures um, a child having um, a meltdown that's been escalated by parents intervening, grabbing their children, etc., and then that segment is filmed or researched, and then um, it's assumed um, that this child is like this all the time. Um, and this is what autism is. Well, it's nice. It's a child having a meltdown that's avoidable. What you're talking about is taking things out of context. Yes. And then parading it around the world, you know, through media. Yes, and then when the likes of um, me and you stand up and talk, you have other people, I mean, I've had people say this to me, oh, you must be very high-functioning. Oh, listen, I've had people say to us, you know, you're too intelligent to be autistic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's not a very nice thing you just said, given that your child is autistic. Do you mean that you do not believe your child is intelligent? And I'll flip it right back. Oh, exactly, exactly. I mean, I was in um, quite... Quite a while, a Quite few well, years ago few now, years ago I was now, in a I meeting with all the, um, the um, heads of mental health within a local authority, and I was describing sort of um, experiences being autistic within a, in that community and the fact that um, there's no services, etc. And this um, neuropsychologist stood up and said um, to me, "When did you contract this disease?" My God! <laughs> so that shows, that the, shows the, level the level of ignorance. How long ago was that? That was, I think, probably about two years ago. Good grief! So th these are people that were heads of the heads of department. That is, and that's in, and that's health. in health. 
Yes, that's a mental health. Oh. Um, in a local authority. That that that's unbelievable. You know, a couple of weeks ago after the event, I had scheduled um, a radio show interview with Mayor Setsky from a city called Cranbrook in British Columbia. Mm. Um, this was as, a, as a, an outcome of Charlie and I meeting with a number of people with different abilities, uh, from uh, cerebral palsy to, you know, Downs and such. Mm. And uh, we we had sort of suggested to these individuals when they went back to their hometowns to, rather than lobby government, to actually spend some time connecting with their local mayor and council and chamber of commerce and so forth um, to, to in, in, in effect, become a citizen in their own community and, and do like their neighbors would do. So they did. And the outcome of this was that they created this couple that, that we know, we know uh, went and met with the mayor, and they created a day where the mayor went and sat in his in Mike's wheelchair, and then an alderman sat in somebody else's, and they went through the town uh, having to drive these electric wheelchairs. And when I had Mayor Stetsky on the radio, you know, he described what it was like and how he started to see through the experience the challenges for people, not just in wheelchairs, he said, but for the elderly and for little children and mm. so on and so forth. Um, he's quite a proactive mayor. But what was interesting is here, here is an individual who then turned around and said on the radio, because I asked him the difference between uh, you know, people out there lobbying for their charities and forcing situations to change versus individuals uh, who are citizens um, becoming a part of their electoral, uh, you know, system, if you will. And he said that it was a much better approach uh, for people to become part of their, their community in this light, as he had experienced, because he said you can actually make the changes a lot faster. Uh, versus, you know, all the red tape, right? Well, it's, it's, it's the, it's, um, one, it's mirrors um, the approach that I sort of, uh, one of the things I'm promoting is this aspect to the, uh, the organic approach to the human condition. And I, I certainly think that um, having individuals within society and community, um, as long as they're protected, um, is the only way forward, really. Um, but it must be, um, one of the things that must be guarded against is this aspect of hate crime. Mm -hmm. rising mm -hmm. prevalence, certainly in this country, of um, disability hate crime. But I think but you I have, think to, do have it, to do it um, not as, as just one person or two people, but again, you've got to get the collective spirit within each community working, um, you know, almost en masse, if you will. For example, For example we've got, we had a number of delegates, delegates come out to our event from Victoria, and they're online, you've seen them, and they've gone back, they have their own support group. They are not connected to any charitable organization or organization period because there is simply no support for adults on the spectrum. So they've created their own way of doing things. Um, when you're working in a collective group like that, you are less liable to be um, put into a situation, as, as you say, of, of hate crimes and bullying. Yeah. Um, because you now, it, it's, it's almost like a model Charlie and I started with 
with uh, the families when we started Anchor. It started not not because we wanted to become consultants, but families actually approached us. They heard me speak, and would after a speaking engagement would say, you know, would you work with my child? Would you teach us about what it is like to be autistic, so on and so forth. And when they came to us, Charlie and I realized that they were in a state of fear. And their fear wasn't about autism. We're going back 18 years now, right, 1995. Their fear was about their environment, um, going to to the shops and and being stared at or criticized or whatever. But we decided that, you know, every Thursday we would go with the parents and with the children on the bus. We'd leave the cars behind, get on the bus, and it was a, a twofold experience. One was for the child's paradigm to map and learn landmarks and, and all of that. And the other part was to uh, help the parents release the fear by working as a group, going to on the bus, to the mall, to the library, to a restaurant. Um, it, um, it helped it, diminish it helped their fears because, because they were working they were on mass, on right, mass. as a collective group. Yes. And then, you know, the stronger they became, the more able they were to then as a family feel that collective group and go out shopping or go to the restaurant or go to a movie. Um, But you have to start from that place. There's a question in the chat room that um, I'm going to ask from Samuel33. He says, I have a question for Rod. What is your opinion on talented autistic people, artists, writers, singers, being thought of as a novelty like their talent being linked with being autistic instead of linked with being individuals with talent? For instance, always looking at autism instead of the hard work and impeccable skills. That's a really excellent question. And um, one of the things that I've been trying to do and promote um, with my organisation is is to is to um, promote us as, as human beings um, that we we do have talents which need to be recognised as a way forward and contributors to society because the way the way um, people like us are viewed at the moment um, costs an awful lot of money. Yeah, yeah. You know we're we're, we're in in lots of debt as as countries and as the world etc etc. Um, and the deficit um, model, um, costs costs a lot of money. And I think that the um, the aspect of um, skills being viewed as novelties um, is a reflection on the medical model and how um, people tend to be viewed as like freak shows if they're within the medical model. And um, my own thoughts on that um, is. The aspect that, it, because autism is in the diagnostic manuals, that that to me says it's a reflection on how damaging the system really is. What do you think about the, uh, um, the diagnostic, diagnostic manual? manual. Uh, uh, if we could use the analogy of gay people, people for a moment. A moment. Yes. Gay community gay got themselves got out of that, out manual, of that manual because mm-hmm. they were in the, in the manual as being sick, ill. Ill. Um, yeah. As gay um, yeah. people, as that's gay what people, it was considered. What, 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 what are your thoughts around that and autism? Well, I think that the um, with it being because it's based on the diagnosis based on behaviours, um, the majority of people with autism 
um, again, majority of the time won't present um, behaviourally. But it becomes like it becomes like sort of a false a false analogy to have a diagnosis um, that actually isn't based on science, but it's based on opinion, based on behaviour. Um, I mean, in my opinion, um, a way diagnosis can be um, improved. Um, and maybe even taking out the manual is is actually if um, clinicians actually um, spend time with the individual over a period of time in different environments. I also think that if more people um, with autism were actually employed to work alongside um, regular workers, etc., then um, they'll be better represented and. Um, people will actually find more about the people and realize that they're not disordered. <laughs> exactly. Um, Charlie has a point that he'd just like to make here mm. as well. Mm. It's just... Hi, Rod. Hi, Rod. It's just it's the whole just notion the whole. of how much importance we give this so-called manual mm. when you take into account that it's created by a very select, small, very small group of people. And the idea that it's a manual in terms of if you have a refrigerator or you have a a toaster oven, and you take out your manual, and it, and it breaks down the constituent parts, tells you how it works, how it works. you know, troubleshooting guide and all of that. Mm. But how is it we could use the term manual when it comes to, again, where this select group of people decide, you know, every few years what they're going to include this year as being, as being the newest illness, newest illness, the newest mental newest. disorder, and which ones we need to take out because they're no longer relevant. So it's in a, in, a, in a state of change, if you will, or flux. And, and my real point is how much we've taken it so seriously as though it's some sort of, you know, mental or mental illness Bible. And I think people really just take it to heart and they take it too, much too seriously because the idea that it's a manual, it just it just never made any sense to me. And going back and to going how back Leonor introduced the topic, that at, at one point, <clears throat> being a homosexual, being a, a member of the gay community, you know, in the DSM-3 meant you had you were had a mental disorder. And then because of the societal pressure, it was no longer a mental disorder. So I call to question the whole idea that people look at this and take it so incredibly serious as though it's some objective truth. You know, that's not susceptible to this, the pressures of society and what we consider real and not real. So I think we really have to start looking at that and taking it with several grains of salt is really my only point. Yes, yeah, so I, I think that the overemphasis on, on the, uh, the, the manuals, um, and I mentioned that purely, uh, pure, um, for two, the two manuals, the World Health Organization and the DSM, um, but for my for my for my mind, the reason why they've been so um, po popularised is because um, the that's how society has <coughs> society has society taken um, stuff from the manual and and basically medical medicalised it in society. So there's been no social model for model. autism. Yeah, absolutely, um, and, and that's part that's part of the problem. And I I do think that you know um, there needs to be like um, a, a more of a social a social way forward with this. Um, I also think as well um, 
one of the ways I think this may um, change things is the, is the aspect that more and more adults have been uh, diagnosed. And I'm hoping in the future that more females as well will be diagnosed. And I think the more, more and more people who are being diagnosed, you'll have the same thing that happened with homosexuality. Yeah, there'll be more, more in, there'll be more people in society that are diagnosed with autism, and therefore it will just be considered a variance on, on humanity, mainly because of the numbers. It goes back to the whole notion, then we'll, we'll go down the same journey or track as the other community, the gay community, as the easiest one to look at. We'll be taking it out of that manual, but then understand in the future there'll be other groups of people that, that will emerge will come to our awareness, our awareness in society, and they, too, they will do. be early identified in a very negative very manner negative and placed manner. in that position. But I just, just, just as a final note, again, I'm not against again, psychiatry. Not against it's just we also have to take into account that's a product that was created, and, and it's so incredibly well marketed. To have people think it is so important and so real, you know, and used to categorize, you know, whole groups of human beings. And we have to take more and more responsibility in society for ourselves and stop looking to the outside to have some system to decide what is okay and what is not okay. You know, what is ill and what is not ill. What is what is dangerous and what is not dangerous. Well, I certainly um, agree with you there, um, with everything you said, actually. Um, but I also think as well that, that with the complexity of autism and the, the absolute fact that we're human beings and as human beings um, we will like any other individual develop mental health problems um, that would need to be treated I believe treated in a different way um, to how like say you know depression in a neurotypical is treated but maybe a sort of standalone manual for for autism where mental health is apparent is apparent well, I, I think one of the things that the trends that we've certainly been aware of, are, are there many professionals in the fields that are actually embracing, as an example, we watched one program where we had people with schizophrenia who are very intelligent individuals who are involved in re-looking at how do we examine schizophrenia because they themselves have, have that or are that, however you want to phrase it. Yeah. And they have an inside track, and and they're and they're and they're and they're, and they're supporting an evolution of thought, you know, reevaluating how we're looking at the whole thing, and as a result, coming up with different ways to approach it all. And I think that's happening in a whole number of different areas. That we first we kept all of these groups, you know, as some some objective thing, some scientific project. Well, they're, they're all hidden away from society and institutions, and now. Um, Certainly, in this country, um, the sort of the the model of sticking people in mental institutions is sort of like um, going. That, that you know, there's been more emphasis over the decades of introducing people um, within the community, keeping people within the community. That um, is the way to go. One of the challenges that we're finding with that, however, are that some of the how would I say this? Yes. Yes, give you an example, you we an have example, an institution yeah. that closed here in British Columbia, which is a great thing mm -hmm. to celebrate, and it was celebrated. But some of the mechanisms that actually <laughs> that caused some of the problems in that institution have folded outside of the institution. So now they've set out all these individual, smaller organizations to support 
the people who came from the institutions to be successful, let's say, in the community. But if you look at how they're functioning, some of the things that were in the large institutions are now being implemented simply on a smaller scale. And I think one, and I think personally, that's going to cause some problems in the future because, again, we're giving control of the integration of these people into society. We're giving that control to smaller systems, to smaller organizations who feel they don't have to dialogue or communicate with anyone outside of their circle of organizations. So it goes back to the challenge that, yes, we need to have all of these individuals in society, but we can't always, again, go back to creating more and more systems, more and more organizations to to support these people. Well, I think certainly society um, needs to take more responsibility for its citizens rather than leave it up to um, local authorities or or a, a, a certain profession. You know, society has a responsibility and a role in these areas. Um, one of the things that um, I certainly experience and other people um, on the spectrum is this aspect of um, warehousing within the community by local authorities. So, you know, that, that, that there's no services. Um, a person can spend all day inside a house and not come into contact with anybody for, for days at a time. That's what we're talking about. Exactly right. Yes. And that's, and that's very prevalent. Um, I've seen it in many of my clients. Um, and I've experienced, I, I experienced it myself. We think one of the ways to approach all that, not in terms of how to address the organizations that do that, but as you say, society, meaning us, the people that live in society, we somehow have to be exposed more, and that's a part of what we do is that exposure in terms of the talents and the abilities and to get out there, get out there, get out there. And I think more, the more exposure we all have to the rest of you know, our neighbors in society, then the fear starts to lessen, you know, because, as you say, they, they get warehoused. They, yes, they're in the community now, you know, they're living here, but as you say, spend most of the time in the house, or they go out, you know, they, their, their, their idea of integration is to go to the bowling alley, you know, or go to the coffee yeah. shop, and yet not really have any any real connection to their neighbors and to the, to the broader individuals that live in our society. Somehow... It's, it's perhaps an easier barrier to tackle than when they lived in institutions outside the city, but it is yet a new barrier, and I think we really have to work at that. Oh, it is, and I think one of the things that's key um, to to having you know, better exposure and, and being wanted by society is, is actually um, having more and more people on the spectrum representing themselves. Absolutely. That, that, you know, and that's, that, I think that's the, the consequence of um, the... What's led to this warehousing, at least in part, is this aspect of how autism is constructed and who actually for many decades now has owned autism. It hasn't been people with autism. <laughs> That's why I used the, the gay analogy initially um, mm. conversation because <clears throat> it came back to the people and the people themselves had to make that shift. When we had the convention and we had Dr. Hetty Fry there, she pointed that out, that it has to be us. We collectively work together um, and make the points. Now, we have Nick in the chat room saying, uh, using the manual is the easy answer. 
it takes more effort to examine the individual than it does just to slap on a label. And we've got a very busy chat room <laughs> happening here. Um, I can imagine. A lot of, lot of guests, I don't know who they are, just a handful of people I know, and the rest are all guests there. Um, but that, that is something that, um, you know, I've had arguments with people who work in the industry, and I'm going to call it an industry, an industry that has built, been built, built around us because we're labeled. And, um, you know, when, when we started out, there were no resources, per se, uh, directly for autistic people, and we were actually the first consulting company uh, to start out, and our thing wasn't about consulting, actually. It was just about sharing um, and supporting. And uh, then we emerged, and our work got viewed by the government indirectly, and uh, then, uh, you know, the government was lobbied by a bunch of parents, and a whole new funding system came in place. And within two years, we went from just our agency and two others to 800 agencies God. in Colombia. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you know why? That really is. Because of the funding. Why? All of a sudden, why? there was why? money. Why? Follow the money, yeah. and, you'll follow, and you'll follow you'll follow the shingles. <laughs> well, so, 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 I mean, um, going back to the manual, um, and that, one of the things that... Um, um, I think um, labelling of any type um, facilitates is, is ignorance and um, stereotypes. Because, because certainly with the diagnostic manual, because it's based on behaviours, um, that's how autism will be represented in the media. And that's where you have um, inaccurate stereotypes um, where, you know, you have a large sway of people that may not um, present as a stereotypical image, image. and therefore it's assumed that they're in no need of understanding or assistance until maybe they have a breakdown. Charlie, it's remarkable, though, that, um, the journey that we, if you look at how it, you know, it's all been going along, going yes, along, it's been yes, regarding behavior, behavior which is such which a, is such a it, it, oftentimes I find sometimes such a superficial way to examine anything. anything. Well, it reminds me of, of the old days of uh, witchcraft. Yeah. Where lots of, you know, if you've got like a certain mark or, you know, got, um, um, gossip or what, got have you, what have you, and then you'd have, um, you know, women largely, you know, um, accused of witchcraft and burnt at the stake. That's how society dealt with them. And that was that was based on superstition and um, myths. <laughs> Absolutely, and there, there's a whole host of myths that were created yeah, around autism. What's autism interesting is many, many of them have fallen away. And it's, you know, you know, the whole, remember, eye contact, eye contact. oh gosh, mm-hmm. no, we don't much eye contact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Autistic. Autistic, when they realize when that there are many of us that are able to do that, <clears throat> they, they seem to kind of stop talking about that. You know, when they used to talk about perceptive behavior, no, and that kind of went to the to, to the wayside when you think in terms of, you know, you know, persevering in, in anything or becoming intensely involved with something you're interested in doesn't make it, you know, a malady. How do you become an expert in anything if you don't spend hours and hours, if not thousands of hours, in whatever your area is that you enjoy? And and what they did to children oftentimes is when they saw they were spending too much time on one thing, 
they were saying is perseverative behavior, and we've got one example, and this mom who actually told us this was many years ago, anytime she saw that, she would take the item away. And we thought, wow, how horrible that is. That child never gets to really get involved, you know, intimately or in depth or anything. And as time went on, they stayed away from that term as well. We've got down to one term, it seems to, seems to encompass the whole area, and that's about being, or difficult, our difficulty with being social. It seems, yes, and again, again that, that's... that's um, they keep using the... It's a, it's a social construct. Yeah, I mean, the aspect of... Um, Say being being social, just like having empathy, etc., is so open to interpretation. And the the the, the, um, the, the problems um, with those areas is that when um, say like an individual makes comments about like all oh, this person isn't social, everybody has a different um, opinion on what being social actually is. Well, I mean, we well, could I mean, turn around and say. You know, people that leave work and go down to the pubs to get blasted mm. um, is is not a social, not social. You know, is not socially correct. It's inappropriate behaviour. We could turn around and call it inappropriate behaviour mm. and create a model around that behaviour. I mean, certainly my experience is that um, um, people with uh, people on the spectrum um, tend to socialise fine with each other. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. So I think I, I think that's a clue in like this this aspect of that we're not sort of social beings. You know, I, I think we have um, much more richness and, de- and depth of thought. Um, it's very natural to want to spend time with people, time with people like ourselves. Like that goes with any group of individuals. individuals. And and I think and there and are very few very people few who are who have, who have the ability and the talent. And I think a part of that comes with with perhaps age and and their experiences that. You can go and you know, be at ease with this group of individuals that are that just like to talk about technology, and then you can yeah. and just be at code total ease. Pardon me, with individuals that are artists, or a group of philosophers, or a group of accountants, or bookkeepers. I'm, it's it's a natural thing, and I remember you know one story I told when I first came to Vancouver and looking for work. I worked for a a catering company, and we did many functions. It was exactly that. The first half hour of all of these professionals, depending on what they do, they were stiff. Walking around, you could see how difficult it was for people to just be at ease with people they don't necessarily know on a regular basis. And then after the first or second drink, all of a sudden, people were becoming social. These are not all Well, these are just people. I mean, I mean, I certainly remember the time. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I remember the time when, when people used to be regarded as specialists in their field, and their socialisation would um, be surrounded, um, surrounded that. Um, it seems that in in today's society, being social means that um, you're ma- you're basically um, master at nothing, but you're you're you've got your toe in in a lot of different things. Exactly. But so, so when people, whenever people tend to socialise, um, it's it's really quite meaningless. If you know, I mean, I've I've heard over the years many neurotypicals um, sort of socialise, but that they end up not talking about anything. Exactly, it's a bunch of. Really. Um, we have another point in the chat room by Samuel. Um, he says uh, the last myth that fell out a bit a bit was flu was shots flu causing autism. 
So that was the latest a couple of days ago. Um, I mean, it's it's just pathetic to see that every, you know, turn of the corner, so to speak, we have yet another excuse by mainstream and by the medical profession to keep us in a box. And I certainly think the ramifications of of, of, um, um, people, the medical professionals, etc., and the media um, linking um, sort of autism or anything else with things that um, may cause death, you know, in children, is deeply worrying. Exactly. You know, the, 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 the effects, you know, the fact that if you have... Um, say a child that may die because they didn't have a flu shot or they contracted a serious illness um that to me to me um how that affects me is is that i i'm considered um so disordered that um it's better that i died as a child of a preventable yeah <laughs> illness and it's, it's a disgrace you know and i think it's a blight on humanity and it, it is a form of eugenics in itself there's a form of eugenics, it's, it's social eugenics, um, by getting this rubbish out in the media and fear-mongering uh, new families and ignorant people, um, you, you are creating eugenics like that. I mean, I, my mother did not have the flu when she was pregnant with me. Uh, we were in Samoa, and uh, when I was pregnant with my son, I didn't have the flu, and uh, we are both autistic. You know, it, it's you just know, ridiculous, it's ridiculous that there are so many, so many um, um, you know, so many people mm-hmm. in the world, autistic adults who are grandparents with autistic grandchildren with autistic children, yes. all just getting on just getting fine. On. Um, to to um, put this, put this, this fear, fear out there fear is out disgusting. disgusting. Charlie has a point he wants to make as well. Mm. <coughs> so much a point, but perhaps veer off a little bit. I'm just wondering what your opinion is on the... Um, idea that this has to do with evolution and I recall watching a, yeah. a documentary and they were just looking at statistics in one part of it and they're showing that the numbers are increasing so rapidly that we were very close to getting to the point where um, being autistic, having autism, however you want to phrase it, will become the norm because the numbers will be so large and if you keep going down that road eventually this small minority group that is working toward becoming so large that it's the norm we could get to the place where we are the majority do you have any thoughts? Well, I, I sort of believe that autism has always um, been there I, I agree it is I think the fact that um, society and communities have changed so much, you know, you get more people that are more tightly, you know, living in, in blocks of flats and apartments, etc. Um, whereas previous generations had more space, more freedom, more flexibility. It it almost seems as though the more the more humanity is sort of boxed up and expected things of them, um, there are consequences to that. But but isn't it a part of it too in terms of? No, the 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 others, if I could use that phrase for a moment, the expectations mm-hmm. on how people need to act and interact have also changed. As you say, perhaps part of that is our living conditions. But but it seems but it that seems there is le- yeah, you're, you're right. There seems to be less freedom for everyone. And, and also, I think that the media places a huge um, expectation on people to socialize in a particular way. The media has an enormous, enormous, but people just aren't aware of. 
Um, um, and it, it's you know, if you look at um, say children in a playground, that they will sort of like um, react. That they're lacked out things that they've seen on the TV, say the previous night, and it becomes like a cultural thing. Um, so it almost it almost seems that. Um, Socialization seems to be based on what is presented within media, and there's huge expectations regarding that, that, such as like you know a, a person um, has to have x amount of friends to be considered popular. You know what's wrong with, what's, what's wrong with one or two really good friends? Well, I, I'm in agreement there, or the whole notion of milestones in terms of by this age mm. you should be doing this. And by that age, you should be doing that. And if you're not doing that, um, then there's something wrong. Um, it's quite. Um, it's quite. I, I, I think there's just. I think there's just. For, for me, I've always, me, I've always believed for a long time there's just too much information, too much information for people. Mm-hmm. You know, too much you know, information too much about information how we are how all we are supposed to be and act and speak and speak. You know, and behave. And behave. And then that gets filtered that down, gets down, down even even in a more microscopic way to the small group that's identified as being different to begin with. Mm. We stick them under a microscope, and everything they, we watch, every action, every word, you know, never looking at the context of the greater group. You know, in the years I spent working in the elementary school, mm. that was really paramount because the first question mm. I would always ask, would and always others ask. like myself would as well, before you target this area that you say the child is acting or or inappropriately or speaking out, what are the rest of the people doing? You know, you're, you're if you keep up, you keep this approach up, you're wanting 100% compliance of this one child, when it's, that itself is unnatural. You know, what is unnatural in these circumstances? Do you ever see anyone else doing what this child is doing and you're saying it's problematic? Because, again, the moment you place that label on the forehead of that individual child, they're watched constantly. You know, it, it, you know, and it, and it, and it just it, works it, against that child just child trying to grow up. To grow up. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean, I've, been, I've also, also found though that, that um, because um, I've I spent my childhood not being labelled or diagnosed medically, um, people still had labels for me. <laughs> um, I guess the, the the question is which labels would you prefer? I I, I think that both um, medical and certain social labels. Um, if they're, you know, they're negative anyway, so that they're they're both as bad as each other. Um, but people always label individuals or, or things, etc. And um, I certainly think that it's the moment. It's a reflection of um, control. There's the word. You know, regarding um, that we as the world have taken the systems approach. To controlling controlling. populations of people, People. and we're organic beings at the end of the day. We're all all different. You can't have rigid. You can't compare. You you cannot compartmentalize a developmental spectrum. That's true. But they're going to try. Yeah, and and but the ramifications for that um, have um, been experienced. You know, this is, I think, you know, one of the reasons why. People on the spectrum have the difficulties that they're having. Really, it's, it's this lack of sort of understanding by by society. Um, it's not actually understand understanding the human beings involved. Well, you know, Charlie and I have had a number of meetings with uh, political people um, over the course of the last few years since we started the uh, 
International Naturally Autistic People Awards Convention and Festival. <clears throat> and two questions come to us all the time. One is, well, actually three, three points, not necessarily questions. Um, one would be what's different um, between being naturally autistic and what's promoted out on the other camp. Why are there two camps? And then, and then why, why do you consider yourself naturally autistic? <laughs> and then the, the other piece is, well, you know, if you um, believe in what your community can do, then it has to be your community doing it. In other words, you have to start to work collectively to get out there and make the change because we, we are just government, elected government officials. We can't make we that can't change make for, that you. for you. You have to do, it. Have to do it. So, so, you know, there's three sort of components to to the conversations we've had. And I'll tell you, we had a very interesting meeting um, in the late spring with a minister, uh, at the time, Minister for Social Development. And this minister, you know, we, you went, know, we went the way an autistic way mind works, which is, Let's present, Let's present our proposal, our proposal in, terms in terms of a storyline story and what and people need to do. And, and, and I felt that, you know, we presented yeah, we quite well. And she said, well, that wasn't, uh, I was expecting a proposal. And we said, but this is how we have to do it. Yes. To present this information first, and then we'll go away, and we'll draw up a budget, and we'll draw up blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, she was kind of a little bit, Ticky offish, and and I looked at her, gave her a few minutes, and then we kept talking again, and then she said, "Well, now actually, now that um, I think about it, in other words, I've had time, I've to, had process time to process the way I need to process. You've actually you've covered quite a lot of points that I can go away and think about it. So at first it was like a write-off. You didn't come with an expected proposal the way she was used to seeing proposals by mainstream." industry related to special needs, mm. now she's speaking to the people themselves and doesn't know how to interpret it. And then and once then she was given she time, time, she was able to realize that we gave her all the, the points that she needed. That she needed. Um, and um, it's until and it's all of us all get of into get those into offices, offices with these people, with these people they, will they will never experience us as we are. They will only experience the gatekeepers that go and lobby for funding for their industry. I also, I, I absolutely agree, and I also think that there's an awful lot of people in positions of power that choose to take the easy route with these things. Um, um, like I say, pe people in um, authority who um, listen to people that they can, un they feel they can understand more easily. Because I, I do think that maybe um, with us, and it's the other way around as well, that um, we find other people find we don't people think like, don't think like us really like hard work, and I'm sure they, they think they feel the same. That's it, they have to work, and, and, and oftentimes when you get into those positions, the expectation is people are going to come in and basically they're going to follow a template that I've already got, I'm used to, I've yeah. set it up in my mind, I know what to expect. How it's going to be presented, and yet, and yet, you know that that that's what part of the problem is. You know, how do you create fundamental change? How do you find 
a vision of how to do things differently and still at the same time have the expectation it's going to be presented to you in the way that you're always accustomed to. How, how does anything change that way? Well, one of the things that I've, I've always believed is, you know, um, I think that, that people, um, let's call them NTs or, or predominant neurotypes, as I prefer to call them, um, I, I sort of have, have, have thought this this aspect of um, if you can if you present something that they think they need, then they'll come on board. It seems to be that, that when when say you know um, you present to to people in authority that you know this group needs your help, etc. Um, then it's it's there's like a power dynamic going on. Where, like, the personal well, authority can say, well, you know, I don't have to do anything or what have you. But if you change the power dynamic and approach it as though we have the power, we have things that they need, um, then you're more likely to influence people, I believe, anyway, um, which is where the, the you know, promoting of skills and um, talents and things like that, it's, it's almost like um, if you've got um, individual inventors inventing things, mm-hmm. um, that other people are more likely to nick their ideas and run off with their ideas, um, whereas if you have a, a group of, um, say, inventors working collectively, then they stand a better, yeah, a, a better, chance, a better chance of actually um, owning what they've created. That makes sense. Yeah, which is where this collective idea of promoting um, positives with autism and the fact that the negatives are largely caused by other people. Charlie just wants to make a point, and then I'm going to bring in some of the callers. One of the things that we could, as you say, give them something that they need, one of the things they need is how do they get control of the amount of money that gets spent viewing things from this negative way. They don't they don't think of it as a negative way, but they, they, they see how more and more... Um, resources are wanted in terms of autism, and by focusing on the positives, you know, our talents and our abilities, it is, you can approach it as, well, this will save you money. This is something you need to do. Well, so it's about investing in people. That's what it's about. Rather than invest in changing, in, in organizations that aim to change people, why not invest in the people directly? But that's not something they're used to. That's been one of the challenges is that organizations like to talk to other organizations. You know, that, that, that's always been understood. And it's, it's, it's more about who you know rather than what you know. Unfortunately, it's, that's so true, and governments, too, are used to speaking to Organizations, people that represent organizations, and the individuals seem to get left out of the out of the mix. And in autism, that's exactly what's occurred. You know, organizations that 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 they believe that they say they speak on behalf of, you know, people, the children that have autism, for example, because they don't have the courage to say they speak on behalf of autistic people. There's too many of us now to say no, you don't. No, you don't. And so, and so that's what government's used to, and they put in proposals, and they say we're going to do A, B, and C, and this is the kind of money we need, and they and they get the resources they want. But it's it's you know, but it's like a hole in the ground. They just keep pouring more and more and more money in because they'll never be satisfied. You know, one of the things happening here is the final point. Pardon me. Pardon me. There's this whole shift now to adults and trying to and find trying employment to find for autistic, autistic people. people. But the only yeah. thing occurring is that the number of individuals being employed to find to help autistic people find employment is just mushrooming. Huge numbers are going up and up and up. 
and the number of autistic people that are actually finding employment as a result of the efforts of those people are zero. Are zero. And, and one of the things that we're now asking and putting out there publicly for anyone listening, there are enough well-qualified, intelligent people that are autistic, and by extension, people with developmental disabilities, because they still use that term, where you, you should be hiring them to help others like themselves find employment. And I've always promoted, tried to promote the same thing. Um, I mean, one of the ways forward that I've um, come up with um, in, in the aspect of uh, social enterprise, many social enterprises, um, is this aspect of supportive self-employment. So that, for example, you have like, um, say, for example, a group of three people within an organisation who can complement each other and support each other. Right. Um, especially with this aspect of um, an uneven intellectual profile wow. in autism. <clears throat> um, I think if you, if you have like um, little um, pods, as it were, but linked into other organisations. Um, then you can start to work as, as a collective based on individual skills. The problem with employment at the moment is it's based it's on this based aspect on of um, you've got a pre, -con a, pre -con a system that's already there. Already so if there. you imagine, you imagine um, um, trying to gain employment, and even if someone does gain employment, it, it can be a, a reflection of educational experiences because it's about um, you're trying to break into, in into institutions, institutions that are geared towards a certain um, way of thinking. And you know, if you have an individual who, who thinks differently, it doesn't matter whether they've got skills or not. Right. Um, so the environment won't um, fit you know, who they are. So if, if, you, if you look at the, um, the difficulties that um, children um, go through in school because of the rigid systems, Etc. The same thing, I think, can be found in certain, a lot of areas of employment as well. I mean, that's certainly my experiences, I mean, of employment being um, a direct continuation from school. You know, there's, all, there's also this aspect of, um, certainly there's more of a trend over here of um, using psychological evaluations um, at interviews. So not only have you got to get through the interview process, they psychologically evaluate you as well. Yeah, I think yeah, we're, we're going to have to collectively around the world come together and come up with our own system to break through this system. Um, we've got a, call, a number of callers on our show. I'm going to bring in code 203 right now, area code 203. Welcome to the show. Welcome. And, Hello, and uh, you have a comment or a question? Uh, <laughs> oh hi, well, it's Paul. I, I was about. Hi, how you doing? Hi, it is great, Paul great. from Connecticut. Connecticut. Hello there, Paul. Hello there, Paul. Oh, I was, oh, I was. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank I'm you. Fine, thank you. So, well, Paul, was, we're was, having was, quite a discussion around being autistic, about the DSM, about employment, <clears throat> about working together, about media. Um, we've covered quite a whole whole gamut here. Oh, and, and I hear his frustration. I mean, as you know, uh, I've I've been quite frustrated about trying to get what I know about autism out in uh, a lump, and I've been having exactly the same problems that most of the community has. But uh, 
I, I've been blessed with adaptation, and if uh, you're able to adapt and, and, and change your job from a $30 an hour job down to a $12 an hour job up to a fifth, and, and always be, keep changing, that has been a blessing for me. I, I, I've got that, that kind of thing going on for me, and thank God I do, but not all of our brothers and sisters have this. And boy, oh boy, do I hear what you are saying about, you know, getting through a psychological process. It's almost like, what does that have to do with what we can produce? Sometimes we produce ten times the amount they do. So I, well, exactly. I, I, I'm very humbled by your comments as well, and um, there, there's great pain. <laughs> and I'm really um, humbled that you recognize that. that huge we, problems. we've lived with all our lives. And, mm. and we all know it, and it's it's tough on us. But uh, th- at some point in our my life, I just had to stop looking at the pain and say I love the life that mm. you know. I w- I'm working oh, for twelve dollars an hour in my community. That is not enough to support anything. But I've learned to live with it. I've learned to adapt with it, and and I'm able even put away money and save for. I've, Leo knows my story. And it's it's very, very difficult, especially when you look at people that you know who don't really care about what's going on around them, that their their strength is their ability to shut out the noise of other people's feelings and, and being able to look right past it. That, uh, to me, has never said strength. That, 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 to me, says shallowness, greediness, and let's just go and forget everybody around. Uh, whatever. I just keep going. I love my life. I love my wife. And I love this message that I think I found about uh, in, in science and some answers as to, you know, there's some, there's some other answers to autism and other medical issues going on that can be found in the medical sciences of food allergens. So, uh, that's my message. Uh, but, but it's just like... Uh, just keep going. Just keep fighting. Just don't give up. I mean, it really. Look, look every day. You look at up, up up the clouds in the sky, and every minute of every day, if you look at the clouds in the sky, and you see this picture over here, and then you turn a little to the right, and it's another picture, and within five minutes, there's a whole new picture. Every second, of every day, you have that gift for you. If you can just look past the pain, I deal with osteoarthritis. I deal. I've dealt with celiac sprue undiagnosed for 20 years. I'm just happy to have life. Mm. So, of course, that's uh, another sidebar, isn't it, to for autistic people? Is that if we well, there's several sidebars um, because of <clears throat> being conditioned into the box um, that, that the medical world has has deemed. You know, we're 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 um, disordered, if you will, um, and society's bought into uh, this this idea of uh, pandemic. Um, so when you look at those two things, what what one of the things that we discussed as delegates at the convention in October with Dr. Hetty Fry. Uh, for those that do not know, Dr. Hetty Fry is an MP for Vancouver Centre in British Columbia uh, for the Federal Liberal Party, the Federal Government, the Liberal Party of the Federal Government in Canada. And she, we asked all politicians from all parties to come to the convention 
and they chose not to. But Dr. Hetty Fry chose to come. Um, and she was and scheduled to speak for <coughs> half an hour and invited to, to listen to the delegates. And she stayed for one hour and 40 minutes. And she literally had to drag herself away because she was so engaged. And she listened to every single delegate. Some delegates, two or three points they were making, others just one and so on and so forth. <coughs> and she really... Um, Engaged herself. engaged herself, and she took the and time to understand uh, uh, that it was not just about families and little children anymore. Here she had an auditorium full of adults who adults were not who were only not on the only spectrum, on the but, spectrum but, but were also were married, married with children, children on the spectrum or not on the spectrum, with grandchildren on the spectrum and so forth, as well as individuals, as well as individuals on the spectrum who are gay, who are transgender, and so on and so forth. And because her background, she's a highly intellectual woman, um, educated at Oxford, um, she uh, is also a medical doctor. And, and she really took it in and, and um, came up some, with, that's why I liked your point on Facebook, Rod, earlier about uh, using law, because she actually suggested that to us. Um, and that Canada actually is in the forefront of, of a law that was passed for human rights and civil rights 30 years ago under Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, so I guess the, the point I'm trying to make, and, and then we discussed, we discussed mental health issues. We discussed the barriers. I mean, my son and I have had barriers to medical health because of the label autism on our file. So we discussed that amongst the other side of the coin, uh, medication, um, uh, other issues that, that are natural to the autistic function. Um, if we don't get the right nutrition, we, we you know, can have joint issues. We can have um, all kinds of health issues. Uh, oh, well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things um, that I believe is, um, uh, is really important concerning um, diagnosis and the value of diagnosis um, is this aspect of um, medication. Say, for example, if um, there's an awful lot of people who, who have been wrongly diagnosed as having mental health problems, um, where on further investigation, they're actually, they're actually autistic. Um, and they may have been prescribed. I mean, I've known 10-year-old um, uh, children being, di being, being um, given very high doses of antipsychotic medication. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which has nearly which destroyed nearly this child. Child. Um, um, unaware, unaware that this child was um, actually autistic. So, because I, I, I mean, from my experience, from my experience as well, um, medication affects us differently. Well, when, when, when I was driving a limo, that's right. When I was driving a limo for, uh, I'll leave an unnamed school, but it's a very prominent school in the Connecticut area, and I was driving a limo back and forth for these children. Uh, attending the school to the airport and back for holidays and what have you. And I, I would always get to talking about health. And the unfortunate and scary part is a lot of our high-functioned in the United States, uh, the, the the families just, they, they don't know what to do with it, and they mm -hmm. just throw a pill at it. 
And I would say no less than half of the children at this high. I mean, we're talking about our aristocrats of the, you know around the world send their children to this school, and oh, half of them half are on a pill are, that is a parent. And, and, and it really is uh, over medication, and the consequences of that. that. Um, um, you know, I mean, certainly on on um, individuals who have autism. In my opinion, and I've written about this academically as well, um, is that if you think about it, um, there's actually been no drug trials ever conducted on people with autism. Well, well, it's been so my understanding. It's been my understanding that if you are on the autistic spectrum, you should definitely consider the same antipsychotic warning that every one of them has for children and young adults, being that we are of high sensitivity. Uh, no matter what point in the Asperger's life, we should probably be, you know, steered away from antipsychotic scenes, how they can cause psychotic behavior. Well, we well, definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, I mean, in my opinion um, really is is that um, because um, medications haven't been trialed on people with autism, we could say that there there's a legal issue there um, regarding um, safety. Absolutely, and and you know they're giving medications to children as young as three, four, and five, which is mm. during their developmental cycle. Yes, um, yes. it's very dangerous. Um, I'm going to just bring in a caller from British Columbia who's been waiting in line. Uh, Paul, I'll okay. just put you on hold. So you can listen in to the show. Thanks for your, Thanks call. For your call. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So welcome so to the welcome show, to the a 250 area, area code. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you? Is this is this David? You betcha. You betcha. Okay. okay. Welcome to the Welcome show, to David. The show. Uh, just for the listener, David is uh, a member of People First in um, Dawson Creek, the northern part of British Columbia. <clears throat> so, do you have a point or question or comment you'd like to make, David? Not right now. No. Okay, you're just okay. listening. I'm sorry. I thought you were calling in <laughs> me. Pardon me. And yes, uh, we can bring you on the show on on the fifteenth, I believe, which is Friday. Friday. Okay. No, okay. Thursday. Thursday. All right. Correct. All right. Correct. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, thanks, David. Uh, thanks, we'll David. go to the we'll next caller in queue, which is the United Kingdom. Hello. Welcome Hello. to the Hello. show, Hello. Peter. Peter. Hi, it's Pete. Yeah. Pete. Welcome to yeah. the show, Pete. Yeah. Thank you so much for your comment in the chat room. Um, perhaps you could share that with the listener. Hello, Peter. Well, hi, Rod. Hi. <laughs> Why are we speaking this far away from each other? I think we know each other, don't we, Peter? I think we do. I'm just saying, please. Sorry, Peter was saying in the chat room that this is a brilliant radio. I'm so pleased. You've invited Rod onto your show. I've been on this yeah. journey with Rod for the past six years. Thank you. So yeah. is there something you'd like to share with the listener, Pete, um, about well, your journey? Yeah, I was yeah. just, I mean, when I first met Rod, that was at the Asperger group that Rod was talking about earlier. Um, I was running the Asperger group, and Rod, Rod came in, and that's yeah. when our journey began because 
I could see something special in Rob. And I think there's thousands of people tonight who have recognised what I recognised. And it's been it's been a roller coaster, but it's been such a worthwhile journey. And I'm just so pleased that Rod that you've invited Rod onto your show to a wider audience. And sometimes over this past six years, it's as if you're hitting a brick wall when all you're wanting to do is to make a difference. And it's just I'm fumbling now because I'm really quite excited about all this. It's interesting because earlier in the show and in an earlier conversation with Rod, he'd mentioned to Charlie and I how he had this dream of people coming together and, and doing, setting about the goals that he wanted to set about. And yeah. it sounds to me that it's all now kicking in. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been a well, long I'm really journey, very excited about meeting the right people because I've, I've met yeah. an awful lot of people over the years. Mm. And there's an awful lot of people that um, I really wish I, I hadn't met. <laughs> and yeah. uh, there were people yeah. that have wasted an awful lot of time. Mm. Um, um, and I'm really, I really um, positive now that I'm, I'm meeting the right type of people, communicating with the right type of people, people with a passion for this area, and people that actually want to do stuff, um, yeah. which is something I've always, I've always wanted. Because um, you know, my goal has always been to work with other individuals of a like mind. Yeah. Well, one of the positive things about the UK now is that. There's a there's a, a law being passed in government, which is um, which one hopes will make a difference, because all the local authorities are now in a position where they've got to do something about autism, and thankfully that uh, a lot of the areas are now all looking at what can we do. So it's giving Rod an opportunity. Um, well, we're, we're actually linked into that already, um, aren't we, Pete? Um, yeah. Because some of the things, because I work with local authorities, um, some of the things that I've um, done is um, I've done training for Coventry City Council, the uh, police, youth offending teams, as well as parent groups. Mm. Um, I've also spoken at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Mm. Um, I also we've also um, actually have been contracted for the last few years to deliver training um, on autism to the largest local authority and social services in Europe. Um, yeah. And we've been involved in um, the sort of steering groups regarding the Autism Act, um, and they actually we're in the process. Of um, we're, we, we're part of a team that aims to um, bring autism awareness training to the population of the largest local authority in Europe. So this is what can be achieved, um, in my view. And we, we've done this without any assistance from anybody else. Um, just think of what we can do as a collective. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> Imagine the power of a collective. When you have individuals in all these different countries who are on the same yeah. page, if you will, um, you know, espousing the same 
believing in the same goals and having the same desires, I, I, it'll it'll just uh, it could be quite quite amazing. And I congratulate yeah. you on, on doing that, Rod, and and Thank keep you. involvement with that. And uh, you guys have so much to give. And it, Thank you, and, and you, you you guys as well. And I think yeah. that we're certainly stronger together. And I think it's celebrating our achievements as well. And I, I think that um, a lot of the hard work has been done already. I agree. Look and back I think at how far we've come. The time has yeah. come where people are ready for that positive message. And, and, and mm. in our experience here, you know, <clears throat> living living where we live, it really is a tourist uh, destination. So we've met people from all you know, different countries, not people that we know every day, but when we were running the shop and it was a bit of an experiment for us right. and uh, having products, you know, from, from different autistic people mm. just to show yeah. the abilities and talents and, and how receptive the people that came into the shop were just so receptive to the idea. Mm. And and so many of them, it was like a, a fresh of breath air, yeah. <laughs> quite literally. Quite and literally. I, think, I think we spent decades and decades, you know, uh, of darkness, of really negative messages that have really injured, you know, done, yes. done horrible damage to generations of children growing up and to adults who were made mm -hmm. to believe that they had nothing to offer and they were nothing but a problem and, and a real <coughs> drain on the economic resources, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really starting to, to, to move aside. And, 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 you know, there isn't even any need to go head-to-head -head with organizations who, who are still throwing that kind of garbage out, and, and we just focus on what we're doing and, and the positive messages that we have to, to deliver and the fact that we have autistic individuals from so many countries who will back us up. Mm -hmm. Because that's one of the things that I, I always make note of is that all of those organizations and individuals who had all these negative things to say and all the wonderful, they said wonderful therapies they had and how they were helping people, one thing they never had and never will have were autistic people, you know, as children who had these yeah. therapies and approaches, who grew up to be adults, mm. and standing behind these people, who said yeah. they were they had the they had the solutions. They just don't have the autistic community behind them, and yeah. so now we're all speaking up, and we have some really great things to say and yeah. and wonderful things to show and to demonstrate, and it's just taking off. I think it's just wonderful. Yeah, that's right. I think it is developing these all these autistic communities into um, a, a proper thing rather than like, um, like a, a um, you know, sort of fragmented aspects of, of people working individually, you know, um, I think we need to work in a cohesive manner. Together. What, what, yes. Pete, Pete, would you want to say something? Yeah, I'd say yeah. we've all, the thing we've always advocated that it, the people in this area need to work together and we've we've had other organisations that have openly said to us that they see us as competition, and we're saying that's not what we're doing it for. We're not competing. We want to work together for the benefit of the those that we're seeking to help. It calls the question, unfortunately, Pete. In my mind, anyway, is that when when they view it as a competition, then where's the integrity? Because if you Absolutely. really are about supporting a group of people, what yeah. is the sense what of competition if we're all out to do the same thing? Well, it, it doesn't make any sense. Just to add to the whole notion, the whole notion of, of communities of autistic people now, 
coming of age coming in different age, countries and us really connecting and working together, there's a surprise for society out there that they don't quite have a handle on yet. You mentioned earlier, Rod, that autism, autistic people have always been around, and you're right about that. But what yeah. the average individual in society doesn't understand is we've been around and we're already here in terms of we are in government, we're in business, yeah. we're in education, and many of those individuals still have some fear or trepidation mm-hmm. to step forward. I mean, um, one of the, a recent academic paper I wrote, um, one of the, I actually did a critique of the NICE guidelines, um, which is the, the guidelines that the NHS use, and they've developed them uh, specifically for autism. And um, the appendix that I used for that was actually um, an individual um, writing his own account um, of autism. And he's actually a um, qualified school teacher that's worked in schools all around the world. And he was diagnosed in his 40s. Well, absolutely. Um, and, and, and we've met, as we say, people in running businesses. Mm. Heads of companies, we've met, and I'll say without, you know, without hesitation, we've met people in politics. We know each other when we see each other and meet. Yeah. You know, yeah. We can identify each other. If you want to use behavior, let's use behavior by the way someone walks, okay, mm. the way someone holds themselves, the gestures that they make, the things they say and the things they don't say. And, and, and they are in those important positions. But now part of our journey is to make it, and they are supporting in the background, you know, they're, they're, they're making an effort. Well, it's really good to know, you know, it is that there are um, people that hopefully um, in the future um, they'll start to come to the foreground. And I, I, I think that if we can sort of, um, I think, you know, work together as a collective, more individuals within higher offices, let's say, uh, would feel more comfortable about um, coming out without fear of persecution. Absolutely, and I think the more they do that, the easier it gets for the future generations. And and I think, as you say, with that individual who's a school teacher, that the more the school teachers come forward, and the plumbers and the electricians and the lawyers who live in our neighborhoods, you know, it, it makes it easier for those that, for whatever reason, they've been taught to be afraid. You know, and that 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 was that was <laughs> our goal from day one is is to an environment where when a family had a child who was diagnosed or identified as being autistic or as having autism to cover all the bases was to create an environment where they were not afraid of the future. You know, that their child will be fine, that everything will be great. Don't worry. And and I and I, I mean I also one of the one of the legacies I think, the Darwin legacies from the um the, the medical model is what it's actually done is it's it's separated um, people that otherwise would have come together naturally. That's exactly right. <clears throat> they objectified children at the end of the day. They separated mm. people. You know, they, they, they taught families to view their child as though somehow it's their child but not really their child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. We're, we're, and that, that's the bigger topic, and, and not to go off on a tangent, but if, if we think our, our world, we've gone through a period in history, and that's all it is. There's always a beginning and an end to everything. That, that the medical model has been supreme, and more and more people are questioning it. They're not saying to get rid of it. They're just questioning the idea that we have to view our, you know, our humanity of how we live and perceive life and each other through this lens called the medical model. 
Well, I think certainly one of the questions that I think um, fundamental questions that need to be asked is is it's what is its what is its its purpose, especially in in the area of autism where there's no scientific um, test data proof exactly of existence. Who 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 benefits? <laughs> so I think identification can be sort of um, useful, but I. I think that um, if that's in, in a medical model, medical model um, I think it's usually damaging. Well, what, what they've shown, though, is that they're not a community. You know, they, they don't act mm. together. I mean, I feel if we look again, and I'm not picking on groups, I'm just making illustrations. Psychiatry, mm. psychiatrists, if you will, they're not a community of individuals who stand together. Because if you see some of the atrocious things that have been done, Mm. autistic people, and we, we, we mentioned briefly the organization in the U.S. that uses electric shock, you know, to, to, to simply because they're disabled or they have, they're autistic, they get electric shock treatments whenever they don't do what, what they're being told to do. Mm. It really was a community in, in a, of psychiatrists, a psychiatric community, as they like to say. If it really did exist and it had any integrity, they would stand up and say, that does not represent what we believe, and that should not be happening. But they never do that, they never do that. you see. So, so mm. there's lots of... Well, certainly, I mean, one of my, one of my um, big... Uh, big uh, first things that I, I sort of um, thought about regarding um, critique, at least in my mind, the medical model, is this aspect that um, environment and experience of the individual is not even taken into account. You know, I mean, a, a person doesn't live their life in bubble wrap... <laughs> Um, that's because they would say, well, you know, a lot of that would be anecdotal information and it's not, you know, you know scientifically measured or I'm sure you have a better understanding of the language than I do. But, but, but that's unfortunate because mm -hmm. you dismiss a whole body of knowledge and experience when, when you... Well, exactly. exactly. And, and, uh, it's damning purely because of the, of the, of the fact that um, autism is diagnosed based on opinion anyway. Exactly. And I wish anyone listening, families, that's all it is. It's diagnosed, as you say. It is. The amount of di diagnoses that I've seen, um, not just of myself having two separate diagnoses from different clinicians, um, but also other other um, individuals that I've um, had as clients, etc. Um, one of the things that's really apparent is that each clinician seems to have a different idea of what autism is. Yeah, the, the terminology differs from um, diagnosis to diagnosis. And, you know, people w would say, well, that's because everybody's different. Well, if everyone's different, how can you have a, a diagnostic category? <laughs> yeah, I, I, we're in agreement there. And <laughs> people need to spend time thinking about it, you know. I remember one psychiatrist saying, well, it's not a science, it's an art. And, and you know, <laughs> but then why is it always put out there as though it is that science. And if it's an art, wow, that leaves great, great areas, great <coughs> squabs of, uh, you know, you know, areas to, for, for, for opinion, if you will. Well, it is. I'm, I'm, I mean, then, then the, um, the next stage of thinking would be a, a drugs, um, the paintbrushes that artists use to paint with. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's... it's um, I mean, when I when I did um, a sort of presentation or talk at, at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, I mean, can imagine how nervous I, I felt walking into this massive building, um, being surrounded by 40 psychiatrists. Mm. You 
in a room, <laughs> and um, it, could have, it, could, it could have taken just one of them to, to think that autism is, you know, um, an uh, applied uh, a, a certain thinking uh, to me, and I, me. I, I could have been sectioned. You never know. You know, it's very okay, scary it's very when scary. you come into contact with um, medical professionals, and I mean, I would certainly advise um, for someone who's seeking a diagnosis to be very careful on how they go about it and um, that, that, that find out as much information about the clinician as possible, like um, look, at, look at their research papers. And, and, <clears throat> and as much as I agree with you and we would do that, it, it, you know, when it, and, it, and it's been part of my belief, that's one, been one of the challenges, not just in this area, is you're raising a family, you have a job, and you, and you have... Mm -hmm. So many things that are important in terms of what you have to tackle, okay? And in terms yes. of anemia, <coughs> you need support for your child. The notion now you're going to also go and take on a research study of individuals before they approach your child. You see the difficulties that arise. And so in society, that's some of the problems that we face is that we all have these different roles to play, you know, and we want to believe that when someone has this title, someone has this background that they put on their wall, that we could really listen and learn from them, and, and we have to have a certain amount of trust. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. But I also understand when people say, I don't have the time or perhaps the ability, you know, to, to, to critique these individuals. What all I see is I need support for my family, for my son, my daughter. So that, that's an even bigger question I don't have an answer for. Oh, no, sure, sure. Um, I mean, this is one of the things that um, I mentioned before about maybe a new idea of diagnosing, whereby it's actually, um, instead of having um, a, a sort of mental health professional or what have you diagnosed, that you have actually especially trained individuals um, within a profession of autism rather than an add-on um, to an existing profession, which is what it is at the moment, and actually have individuals um, who sort of form an opinion regarding diagnosis by actually getting to know the family because it, it's it's all too often that it's the individual who seems to be diagnosed um, whereas with the genetic aspects and that um, it should be viewed on a family basis. Yeah, absolutely and uh, that leads us then to culture. Um, <clears throat> we're just coming to the end of the show. I want to thank all the listeners that are listening in and all the chat room People. We had 60 people. Uh, oh, brilliant. Um, that number will go up in the next hour because it takes time for the system mm. to add in all the, the iPad listeners and the iPhone listeners. But uh, okay. terrific show, terrific and show. I think, and you, I know, think there's, you know, there's lots of um, areas for discussion for another show, Rod. And, uh, oh, definitely. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed my time. Thank you for inviting me, and I hope that the listeners um, enjoyed it as well. I think you've I given think a, like, lot of, like, a lot of thought for, thought for the listeners. For the and listeners Peter, and thank you so much you for so joining much. the Join show, and perhaps we can, we can have you on at some point to discuss the journey that uh, yeah. you were on with uh, Rod for these past years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It would be fantastic. And well, I just feel thank that... Thank you for this opportunity that you've given, Rod. Oh, gosh. I've brilliant. I've, be doing this a long time ago, wasn't it? <laughs> and I'd, I'd just like to also thank Peter for his support over the years as well, because um, out of all the people I've met so far, he's the one that's actually taken the time 
taken the time and opportunity um, to actually understand human beings um, with autism. Well, I, th I think it's, it's a really great start, and we've collectively now come together, and uh, there's just a lot we can do online and, and through the different uh, things that we're doing over the next few months. So uh, we'll all be in touch, and once again, thank you to our listener. Thank you, Rod. Thank you, Peter. And uh, I'm you. Leonora Gregory-Kalura, your host for today's show, Family, Technology, and Education, Notwithstanding Employment. And uh, tune in next week. I've got Heidi Carabine coming on the show. And this coming Friday, I have Joseph Shepard from Victoria. He is on the spectrum, and he's a professor in the Department of Research and Autism. So we're going to have a great show this Friday, and it's going to be 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Thanks very much, and we'll sign off with Janet Panic. It'll all work out. 10 seconds.